Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hi. Um, Welcome to KGB, to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Uh, a monthly reading series where we have two readers who are always wonderful. And oh no, and he's taking my picture. That's right. <laughs> where I take, where I usually, but see, I can delete my pictures, his pictures of me. But anyway, um, before I start, um, I think probably a lot of you know that um, David Hartwell, um, who is an editor at Tour um, and has been in science fiction for like, I don't know, 50 years, and first starting as a fan and then as an editor and as a critic and many things. Um, he fell yesterday and experienced a brain hemorrhage. Um, <clears throat> he's, which he's not expected to recover from. So I just wanted to, I mean, I'd like to dedicate this particular reading month to him and, um, you know, and our thoughts are with his family and with the Tor family and everybody who knew him or know him. All right, anyway, um, <coughs> our first reader, oh, sorry, there are books for sale from our readers back there, and you please buy them and get your readers to sign them, Alana Meyer and Delia Sherman, and um, our upcoming readers over the next few months are February 17th, Car I don't know how to put it, Carola, I'll have to find it out before next month, Carola Dibble. She is? Where? 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 So how do you pronounce Where? your first name? Is it Carola or Carola? Carola. Carola. Okay. You'll have to remind me next month, but anyway. <laughs> Carola Dibble and <coughs> Gemma Files. <laughs> March 16th, Rio Yours and David Nickel. Um, April 20th, Elizabeth Baer and Scott Lynch. May 18th, Ellen Clagis and Victor Laval. June 15th, Livia Llewellyn and Mark Laidlaw. July 20th, David Levine and TK. <laughs> um, the, and August 17th, we have Leanna Renee Heber and the ever-popular TK. And September 21st, we have Alyssa Wong and Laird Barron. So, so they have good stuff coming. And, um, and we have a lot of people here, and it's really nice to see everybody. And it's nice to see the community come together every month, but especially now. Um, <clears throat> Alana C. Meyer is the author of Last Song Before Night, an epic fantasy about poets and dark enchantments. Her writing has appeared in The Globe and Mail, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Salon, and the Huffington Post. Previously, she was a journalist in Jerusalem. She lives in New York City. Please welcome her. Book just came out three months ago. 
Um, but I've actually decided to write from the, to read from, sorry, the sequel, which is currently in progress. Um, the working title is Fire Dance. And my editor's in the audience and has not read it yet, so no pressure. And who is your editor in the Marco Promieri. Yes, we want Marco. Um, so, uh, just, you know, very light background. Um, the court poet has come to a new country to investigate some incidents of dark magic. Um, she brings with her Ned, who is her spy. Um, and I guess that's all you need to know. With time remaining until they were to disembark, and with his new orders in mind, Ned Elterra sought the queen. The barge rocked gently with his tread on the boards, reminding him he was not on firm ground, as if he needed reminding. The court poet might be mad, their lives were at risk, and now he'd been assigned to discover more about a woman of whom the rumors were not encouraging. In the guard's tent, when they were not making vulgar jokes about <coughs> Rehab Betsor, Coated, of course, and dared only over too many mugs of beer. They were hinting at her lurid reputation. She was insatiable, they said, clearly regretting this quality did not extend to themselves. Ned was sober enough to know such talk amounted to treason and could mean death to the queen if it was true. And if she was capable of such betrayal, he reflected, what else might she do? In which case, the court poet had been right to set him to discover what he could. The breeze wafting toward the barge brought the scent of orange trees. From the reeds by the shore came the guttural scream of a heron. Ned found his mind drifting back to his travels and back. He remembered sadness. It was strange to look back on a distant self. Those feelings could still arise in him if he allowed them, though without the quicksand intensity they'd once had. He was shocked to find her alone on a balcony below deck. The queen was always surrounded by her women, but not now. Her back was to him as she looked out towards the mountain. Like her husband, she wore robes of state, thick and heavy, and so beaded with gems he wondered how she could move, her hair elaborately braided. In a cold voice and in his tongue, she said, without turning, what is it, Lord Altera? The hairs on the back of his neck prickled as before an attack. I hope my odor is not displeasing, Your Excellence, he said, trying for humor. I don't know how else you could have guessed it was me. She turned her head, chin high, her expression unmoved. Her lips stained the color of blood. Do you customarily come upon women in this way? Not customarily, he said. I was looking for silence. There are a great many people above deck. Sometimes I find myself inclined to get away. As he said it, he realized it bore a ring of truth because in part it was true. He had been looking for her. He also longed for solitude, away from the invisible tense strings that seemed to pull him in all directions above deck. The watching eyes, meaningful gestures, the manipulations. May I join you? I wish to be alone, she said. 
but we might meet later if you wish, tonight. She was looking him full in the eye. Her eyes were an unusual color, so dark a blue they were almost black. Her neckline dipped low, revealed flesh like dented cream. You are so pale, Lord Altera, she purred, no trace of a smile. I trust you are well. Ned felt heavy and light at the same time. Can't do this. But found himself saying, of course I will meet you. I await your instructions, my lady. Good, he imagined from Lynn, her fevered eyes approving, and felt a returning surge of sadness. Anything he did to imperil his life with Rihanna Galvin could plunge him right back, he realized. That distant self was, it turned out, only as far as the next disaster. A disaster that might be approaching now, with the ring the queen pressed into his hand. She did so without touching his skin. Ned stared at the inside of his palm. The ring was gold and set with pearls that took the shape of a swan with a single amber eye. It seemed large for the queen's small hand. Show this at the seventh arch in the fifth corridor, three bells from moonrise, she said. I think I might like you, Ned Altera. Time and your performance will tell. Now go, I would be alone with my thoughts. As Ned stumbled back the way he'd come, he felt as if he pushed through the mire of his own self-loathing. The ring clutched in his hand was coated with sweat from his palm, though the metal was cool. He had a choice. Who was to say what his desires were, his true motives? These tended to be buried beyond awareness, even for Ned, who believed him he knew himself. I have a mission, Ned tried to tell Rihanna Galvin in his mind, but knew he would never tell her. The unsaid would consume him, perhaps forever, yet to lose her would be worse. As he surfaced above deck, a wind swept over Ned and he tipped his back his head to receive it, to be cleansed. They were nearly ashore now. The walls and towers that soared in great curves around the mountain were painted crimson with the descending sun. The tower of glass like a bloodied sword. So Ned saw it when first they approached and would afterwards remember. The route to her took him through the palace at night, a different sort of splendor than had been lit vividly at sunset. In a procession, they had ridden from shore up a road that wound with the curves of the mountain, past terraced fruit trees and walls ornamented with carvings, delicate as a spider's weave. Ned had marveled at the entrance hall tiled with porphyry, at rooms gilded at the, ins the inside of a jewel box. Gardens interwove with rooms on every level of the palace, wild or tamed, with flowers like explosions of fire and trees in bloom. He knew what he saw was a fraction. The tales he'd heard were true. With nightfall, the colors dimmed. Low burning coals in the braziers cast a ring of light on the wall carvings, left the rest in shadow. On his way, Ned arrived at a courtyard where pillars lithe as birch trees surrounded a still, square-cut pool that held the moon. If he had been a poet, Ned thought, he might have lingered here. But someone like him had no business in a place like this. He was tasked to act. His thoughts about it didn't matter. 
he was no more than a concealed knife in the court poet's sleeve. Yet after he'd left the courtyard behind, that image of the moon doubled in water lingered in his mind. When he showed the pearl-encrusted ring to the door attendant, he was led inside without a word, down a hall hung with silk draperies, their embroidered designs vague in the half-light. The steps of the servant made no sound. In contrast, Ned thought his own boots rang a vulgar announcement on the tile. It would be painfully clear to anyone that he was not from here. But he had bathed for the journey and changed into his best clothes, including his blue jacket that Rihanna liked had shaved using the copper mirror and oils provided, taking care not to look himself in the eye. What he had not done was apply the scent that had been presented to him in a handsome brass jar, had resisted the urge to throw it back at the impassive servant who offered it. For all Ned knew, it might have been a gift they gave all honored guests. The male attendant, garbed richly as a monarch, remained expressionless as he motioned Ned Altera to enter without allowing himself to think, though a part of him still with the calm pool, its doubled moon, Ned parted the curtain that led to her. She was seated at a table ringed with red candles that stood in tall brass sconces, each split at the base into four clawed feet. She had changed her dress from the opulent absurdity of earlier. Her robe was simple and yellow, kirtled with gold thread her hair only partly braided, flowing soft around her face. Come, she said, sit, do you like wine? A woman at her elbow held a pitcher and cups, porcelain glazed to look like gold. Ned remembered there was a prohibition among those who worshiped Delphine against drinking from vessels made of metal. He allowed himself to be seated at the table. And then he saw the table for the first time. Ned felt his brows draw together. He stared from the table to the queen and back again. Wine, he agreed and took the cup and drained it. When he was done, he saw the queen watched him with a small smile. In a way, that gave him an opening. You like to play games, I see. This is why I invited you here. She balanced her chin on her fingertips, looking mischievous. Are you angry? No. Ned could have laughed in that moment, but it would have come out wild, strange. He restrained himself. When at last he could speak, he managed a casual tone, though it does raise some questions. The first being, is this what you meant by my performance? She laughed. But he thought, when her eyes turned to the table, figures of black and white lined up in rows on the squares, it was with a veiled look that was not amusement at all. This is the game that interests me, Lord Altera, and I so rarely have the opportunity for a fair match. No one wants to win against their queen, you see. Her lip curled with scorn. Or they imagine this is a whim for me, like a new face powder, and will not engage with all their wits. It's a bore, you know, to defeat someone not even in the fight. What game is it? He narrowed his eyes in concentration as he took in the game board a new, different sort of task. His knees were weak with relief. At the same time, he felt unprepared. She was smiling as if they were already friends, as if his agreeing to play delighted her that much. Don't you know it? It's the game of kings. I've heard of it. He thought he had played it once or twice. 
a childhood memory. But he would have remembered a game board like this. The alternating squares of black and white were marble, the white veined with red. Also carved from marble were the pieces, their faces, dignity, and miniature. Each side had its king and queen, the white with tiaras of diamond, the black with rubies. Alongside these, he noticed the figures of bearded men in robes who held staves, each topped with a jewel to match the royal crowns. The magicians, said Rehabetzor, noting his glance. I suppose in Tamerlane they would be court poets. Each side is a court. The game, well, it is the only game that matters, isn't it? She had taken up the king on her side, the side of black. Her slender fingers with their painted nails stroked it in a manner almost sensuous, at least to Ned's eyes. But her gaze was far away. Kings fight to keep a hold of the throne while the queen, their queens, must play the game. As you'll see, the king can do little on his own behalf, so hampered is he by tradition and ceremony. These weigh on him like the crown itself. The queen, she is more skillful at maneuvering, but surrounded by enemies, much of the battle falls to her. When you say that, do you mean the queen is the more powerful piece? She nodded. She can move this way and that and that to capture a piece. She demonstrated with her own queen, using it to knock one of Ned's foot soldiers from his front line. The magicians have power too, but they are at her command. Capture the queen, she said, staring at the board, and more often than not, you've as good as won the game. It sounds straightforward, Ned said, studying the positioning of the pieces. He wondered where on such a board he would be. He was no magician. His eyes fell on, dis on the disposable soldiers on the front lines. They were not as finely carved as the rest, their faces crude copies of one another. But there were other pieces, too. There were horse heads as if inspired by a royal battle charger, not as disposable as the more numerous men-at-arms, perhaps, but loyal, in the end, just as ready to die for their king or queen. Rehab was saying, it may sound simple, but you will see it becomes complex. Sometimes power is its own price. What do you mean? She smiled, though it seemed forced, like a curtain coming down on a lamp. That I should keep to myself, she said. Otherwise, how will I win against you? Take a break. In the meantime, have a drink, either liquor or not liquor, because <laughs> really, and also, and liquor, go for whatever, and leave a nice tip for your bartenders. We get the space for free, and all they ask is that we drink. So thanks, and we'll see you in about ten minutes. Everybody, we're gonna. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I know it's really important what you have to, what you have to say, but. Um, not as important as, no. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. This reading series has been going on for, uh, oh, over a decade. And, uh, my name's Matt Kressel. I co-host with Ellen Datlow. 
Uh, we've been doing it for a long, long time. And all we ask, all we ask, is that you buy a drink hard or soft and support the bar because there is never a cover charge. When you walk in the door, was there a bouncer? Was there someone yes. saying yes. there was a bouncer? What's, what's her name? I need to have a word with her. Is there, there's never a cover charge. It's always free. And all they ask is that you buy a drink and tip your bartenders. And if you want to, give them a kiss on the cheek. No. No, why not? That, I don't know. Only, only if they're okay with that. Um, so Ellen mentioned the, the upcoming readers. So we already did that. So all I will say is that we have books for sale in the back. Word Bookstore from Brooklyn and Jersey City's in the back. Wave, wave by, the, by the door. So you can go there, buy the author's books, bring them up, get them signed. After the reading, we'll have a, a, a little while where you can do that. You can get your books signed. And then on to our next reader. Um, I've known uh, Delia Sherman for a while. I've enjoyed her fiction for longer. And uh, I'm really happy to introduce her now. Uh, Delia Sherman's writing habit has been the cause of numerous short stories and novels, <laughs> the most recent of which is the Norton Award-winning The Freedom Maze. Her next middle-grade novel, The Evil Wizard Smallbone, will be published by Candlewick Press in November 2016. Her novella, The Great Detective, will be coming out from Tor.com early next year. She's also working on the serial box serial, Fierce Artifice, about the women of the court of Charles II of England. Her library and her art reside in New York full-time, but everything else important in her life is fully portable, including her indefatigable, indefatigable wife and sometime writing partner, Ellen Kushner. There's Delia Sherman. Take your partner in do si -do. Okay, this is where I'm sorry I wore high heels. Um, this is actually, I think, coming out this year in February. Is it not? Yes, February 20th. Um, and it's The Great Detective. And it's going to form part of the book that I am also writing at the same time that I'm writing everything else. Um, anyway, The Great Detective. November, 1880. On a foggy autumn morning, a horseless carriage chugged slowly along a fashionable London street. The carriage was of antique design, steam-driven instead of the more modern clockwork, with a tall chimney pipe that added its acrid might to the smoky air. A burly footman sat on its box, peering through the gloom at the house numbers. He hastily pulled the brake, and the carriage came to a halt with a long hiss of escaping steam. The door burst open, and a young gentleman sprang out onto the pavement. He was perhaps twenty-two, tall and knobby, with longish light hair and, a, and small round spectacles. His low-crowned hat was crammed to his ears, and his coat was buttoned askew. His careless appearance suggested bohemian tendencies. The carriage's obviously handmade fog lights revealed a mechanical bent, not an artisan, not with that coat. A gentleman mechanic then, possibly an inventor. The young woman who had lit after him was more difficult to parse. She was younger than the gentleman, between 18 and 20 years of age, and clearly on comfortable terms with him. One would have thought the brother and sister had there been the slightest resemblance. 
As it was, she was dark where he was fair, tiny and compact where he was tall and loose-limbed, and her severe mulberry walking costume spoke of a lady's companion. She carried a practical-looking cane, which she did not seem to need. A sulfurous swirl of fog briefly enveloped the pair. When it cleared, they were climbing the lodging house steps with their footman a few steps behind, bearing in his arms what looked to be a large and elaborate doll clad in china blue. The young gentleman rang the bell. Above them, a curtain in the first floor window twitched, and a figure retreated into the room beyond. The game was afoot. <laughs> Miss Tacy Goff was in a state of tension so extreme that time slowed almost to a standstill. The ride through the fog from Curzon Street to Pall Mall had taken an age of the world, and another had passed as they waited for an answer to Sir Arthur's ring. Tacy was on the point of reaching for the bell herself when the door snapped open to reveal a small empty room sealed off from the house itself by a second door. Sir Arthur stepped in and peered about. A fog exhaust, he exclaimed. See the fan above the door? I've been longing to see one ever since I read about them in the London Inventor. Then, impatiently, come in, come in, there's room enough for all of us. There was, though it felt very cramped when the street door swung to, trapping them in a cloud of stinging air. The fan whirred, the air cleared, and the inner door opened, letting them into a hall illuminated by a Smith clockwork lamp. A lady in black bombazine took one look at Sir Arthur's hat and misbuttoned coat and said, first floor front, end of the hall. <laughs> Sir Arthur sprang up the steps like a dog on the scent, but Tacy turned, hesitating. Ankharid. The, dog the, the doll answered her, its voice tinkling and tuneful as a music box. Away with you. James and I will follow. Gratefully, Tacy laid the cane in the doll's white kid hands and ran up the stairs, reaching the top just as the door to the first floor front opened, revealing quite the largest man she had ever seen. He loomed over Sir Arthur, who was himself a tall man, and was easily twice his girth. With a heavy, handsome countenance dominated by a hawk-like nose and pale eyes that gave back the light of the smith lamp like pearls. Sir Arthur straightened his spine in his spectacles. <laughs> Mr. Mycroft Holmes, I am Sir Arthur Cumlick of Cumlick Manor, and I am come to consult your reasoning machine on a matter of some importance. The pale gaze swept past him to the end of the hall where a musical voice was demanding to be set down like gently mind. By all that's wonderful, the big man breathed, it's the ghost in the machine. <laughs> Although the automaton was indeed haunted by the ghost of Sir Arthur's noble ancestress, she considered the name bestowed on her by the popular press a slight upon her dignity. <laughs> Tacy had heard her curse an inventor who had addressed her thus in terms that might have distressed him very much had he been able to understand Welsh. <laughs> I am Mistress Angharad Cumlick of Cumlick Manor, and I believe I am as human as yourself. It was a mild enough rebuke, but Mr. Holmes appeared to fear, feel it extremely. Your pardon, Mistress Kumlik, I meant no offense, no offense in the world. I am a firm supporter of mechanical rights, although, of course, you are a special case. Your response to Mr. Judges, Justice Booby's denial of your right to testify brought tears to my eyes. 
Sir Arthur's nervous cough brought Mycroft Holmes's wandering attention back to the issue at hand. Ah, yes, a matter of some importance, you say. Well, then by all means come in. He strode down the hall to where Angharad stood, swaying and, swaying and gravely offered here her his arm. Mistress Kumlik, if you will permit me. With equal gravity, she accepted his help. Trust Angharad, Tacy thought, as she followed Sir Arthur into Mr. Holmes's chambers, to behave when every moment is precious as though time means nothing. Although perhaps it did not to a ghost. The sitting room was a large and airy apartment in the aesthetic style, hung with bird and gear paper from Morrison <laughs> Company. Green velvet curtains were drawn against the fog, and exquisite automata were arranged like statues between glass-fronted cases of curiosities. Tacy's eye was caught by a fist-sized bag constructed from sheets of rubber in one of the cases. That's never a Peterson's mechanical heart. It is, Mr. Holmes said. You are very observant, Miss Goff. Having attracted their host's attention, Tacy found that she'd been more comfortable without it. You are Welsh, he said, his pale eyes fixing her like a bug on a pin. A countrywoman and a blacksmith's daughter, or perhaps sister. He lifted her hand and examined it. A mechanic and unmarried. Sir Arthur's apprentice, then, given your tender years. Startled, Tacy reclaimed her hand. How did you, oh, she touched the iron and bronze brooch pinned to her lapel. This, my old boots, and the stuff of my jacket, is it? And the calluses on forefinger and thumb, the stigmata of our trade. Mr. Holmes displayed his own plump hands, calloused precisely as he had described, then waved hospitably towards a cushioned settee where Anchor had sat, her feet dangling some inches above the carpeted floor. Pray. Be seated. Sir Arthur took the nearest chair, and Tacy perched by Angharad, trying not to fidget. Mr. Holmes settled himself in a Morris chair facing them. Sir Arthur began, It's my illogic engine, you see. I... The big man lifted a restraining hand. One moment, if you please. He raised his voice slightly. Reasoning machine, engage. <laughs> the automaton beside the mantelpiece turned its head and stepped forward. Never had Tacy seen or even imagined a machine so very nearly natural. Its, its face, uh, as Mr. Holmes's reasoning machine, its face was a fine-drawn version of his own countenance, the nose a shade more aquiline, the cheeks narrower, the jaw more sharply cut, the dark hair more abundant. It was almost as tall as the inventor, but much thinner. And its eyes were the same silvery gray, it might almost have been Mr. Holmes's younger brother. <laughs> Exquisite, Sir Arthur breathed. Mr. Holmes steepled his fingers before his chest. Order, he said, interrogate. Subject, robbery. Lowering itself into a wing chair, the reasoning machine assumed an attitude the exact mirror of its creators. What exactly has been stolen? The resonant voice was neither metallic nor artificially musical. It would have sounded perfectly natural had it not been so utterly devoid of expression. <laughs> Tacy shivered. Sir Arthur leaned forwards, blue eyes intent behind his silver spectacles. My latest invention, the illogic engine. What is an illogic engine? Ah, oh, well, 
Sir Arthur sat back ready to lecture. Simply stated, the illogic engine is a variation on the logic engine that drives intellects such as your own. It is designed to endow mechanicals with those aspects of human intelligence that exist independent of reason. The reasoning machine's fine brows lifted in a parody of surprise. Engines are, by definition, logical. An illogic engine, therefore, cannot exist. <laughs> it does, then, Casey snapped before she could stop herself, and functions very well, look you, for a prototype. <laughs> After the mechanical's even bass, her voice sounded high and shrill. She fell silent, blushing uncomfortably, though no one seemed to have noticed her outburst. Where were you when the theft occurred? The flat voice went on. At a concert, Lord Wolford organized the party. Miss Goff and Mistress Kumlik accompanied me, and our footman James, of course. Mistress Kumlik is unable to climb steps or walk far without assistance. And the other servants? Sir Arthur glanced at Tacey, who asked her in a self-conscious murmur. The butler, the cook, the kitchen maid, and the parlormaid were all in the house. She hesitated. Also, three guard mechanicals in the garden and one in the mews. Did any of these persons raise an alarm? Persons. Tacey wondered if the reasoning machine had meant to include the guard mechanicals in the term. <coughs> the servants heard nothing, she said. The mechanicals were incapacitated. And not only the guard mechanicals, she reflected. Every piece of clockwork in the house had been frozen solid as a pond in January, from the call clock to the toasting machine to the little cleaning mechanicals she had made to polish the workshop windows. It was all very disturbing, particularly as the nature of the sabotage made it unlikely that any common criminal could have been involved. It had to have been a mechanic working with an inventor, or perhaps an inventor himself. But who? The inventors of England were a contentious lot. Suspicious, secretive, jealous, liable to accusations and lawsuits and subtle plagiarism. From jealousy to theft was not so great a step if one were unscrupulous as well. The question was, which one of them could it have been? Tacey returned her attention to the interrogation, which was proceeding with logical precision. Had there been signs of forced entry? There had not, neither to the house nor the workshop. Who knew about the illogic engine? Miss Goff, of course, and Mistress Kumlik, Miss Goff's father, and one Mr. Staunton, who had been Arthur's tutor, and Lord Walford, and perhaps one or two other members of the Royal Society, whose advice Sir Arthur had solicited on one subject or another, including, Sir Arthur said with a bow to Mr. Holmes, your distinguished creators. The inventor, who had been sitting with his eyes closed as if half asleep, opened them again. I was happy to be of assistance, he said graciously. Well, we have enough to be going on with, I think. Order, theorize. The mechanical went very still. Tacey glanced at Sir Arthur, who gazed at it with the air of a dog expecting a treat. He clearly believed Mr. Holmes' mechanical detective capable of pulling the missing engine from the narrative like a rabbit from a hat. Somewhat to her own surprise, Tacey shared neither Sir Arthur's optimism nor his admiration of the big man's creation. Accustomed to mechanicals from the cradle as she was, she found herself regarding the reasoning machine with a discomfort that surprised as much as it distressed her. The thing is so very nearly human, she thought, and yet it remained a thing. 
while Angharad, with her obviously mechanical voice, grinding joints and immovable features, seemed fully human to her. Was it her friendship with Angharad that made the difference? The machine's flat voice recalled Tacy's wandering thoughts. Current data suggests two possibilities. One, a rival inventor or a hireling of such an inventor. Suspects, Lord Walford, Mr. Jeremiah, Jeremiah Stanton, Mr. Henry Fairley, Mr. Mycroft Holmes. Sir Arthur Bridle. That is impossible. Lord Walford is a most honorable gentleman. Mr. Holmes is, well, Mr. Holmes, you know. And I would trust both Mr. Fairley and Mr. Stanton with anything you care to name. They would never. The big man held up a restraining hand. Lord Walford is an inventor, he said, as are Mr. Stanton and Mr. Fairley, as am I, come to that. We all stand to gain by stealing your engine, and Lord Walford's invention, invitation did take you from home last night. He was my father's friend, Sir Arthur said stubbornly. I will not believe it. Tacy restrained herself from pointing out that this said more about Sir Arthur's character than Lord Walford's. <laughs> Mr. Holmes shook his head. He seemed about to remonstrate with Sir Arthur when Angharad chimed in. Order, state po second possibility. After a pause, which Tacy could not help perceiving as startled, the reasoning machine said, two, a personal enemy, suspect, Mr. Amos, go to bed. Impossible, Sir Arthur said, and this time Tacy agreed. But he is in prison, she exclaimed, 30 years in Dartmoor the sentence was. Mr. Holmes shrugged. Order, he said, search newspaper files, subject, Amos, go to bed. Amos, go to bed remitted to Dartmoor Prison, August 1875, escaped from Dartmoor Prison, February 24th, 1880. Escaped. Tacy grew cold. A hand took hers, a mechanical hand, hard and chill under its kid skin covering, but the hand of a friend, and she clutched it desperately. And Karid understood. She had been present in her ghostly form the night go-to-bed and his thugs had overturned Sir Arthur's workshop at Cumlick Manor. With true Cumlick recklessness, she had possessed an expensive French automaton Sir Arthur had purchased to study and attacked go-to-bed with a hammer. <laughs> Even though the adventure had ended with the criminal safely locked up in prison, Tacy still woke in the night from dreams of a hulking go-to-bed smashing machines and mechanicals and delicate tools as he laughed like the fiend he was. Oblivious to Tacy's distress, the reasoning machine went on. Scotland Yard have received reports from Newcastle, Maidenhead, and Aberdeen. It is thought that he... Order! Stop! Mr. Holmes said, and the machine fell silent. Sir Arthur looked stricken. I borrowed money from go to bed, you know, after my father died leaving me without a feather to fly with. I regretted it almost immediately. It seems I'm still to regret it. He lifted his head. Will you take the case, Mr. Holmes? Mm -hmm. My dear fellow, the big man said, of course we will. We should be at your disposal by this evening, tomorrow forenoon at the latest. In the meantime, I, I suggest you report the robbery to the police. Inspector Gregson is the man to ask for. He's called us in several times to consult on one affair or another and understands our methods. You may use my name. The interview was over. That afternoon, Tacy and Ankharid sat in the drawing room waiting for Sir Arthur to return from Scotland Yard. 
Ankara turned over the cards of a game of patience, while Tacey stared blankly at the monograph she'd been meaning to read by one Peter Kentrip Esquire D. Sy Phil Oxon. It concerned the effects of certain sound waves on metal, a subject of deep interest to her, but try as she might, she could not progress past the first paragraph or say what had been in it. Tacey laid the monograph aside, collected her wooden whistle from the mantel, and raised it to her lips. There was a whistle in the library, too, and a clarinet in the workshop, for Tacey found music a great aid to thought, as well as a balm to a troubled spirit. She had tootled her way through one Welsh hymn and was beginning another, when Ankar had said, Your clarinet I can bear, but left upon a penny whistle is beyond human endurance. <laughs> Give over, Tacey, my little one, and come watch my play. Reluctantly, Tacey set down the whistle and sat at the table where Angharad was shuffling for another game. The mechanical fingers creaked like an ancient beldams as she tapped the cards even. Tacey regretted, not for the first time, that the automaton Angharad haunted was only a rich man's toy, its joints and gears not designed for hard use. The legs had weakened first, then the wing finger and jaw hinges, so that the rosy mouth always hung slightly ajar. As Tacey watched, Ankarad fumbled the shuffle, spraying the cards broadcast. She cursed blisteringly in Welsh. Oh, why cannot I have a body like the mechanical detectives with its joints like oil and its mouth that could smile? Did the creature only know how? Perhaps Mr. Holmes will make you one. More important things to do, he has, playing God on the sixth day for one. In any case, I do not know how a transfer from one body to another might affect me. I did but jest. I know, but perhaps you might let him replace your joints with something better. A pulley more or less cannot make a difference. And Harid raised a warning hand. Enough. If I will not suffer you, whom I love and trust as a sister, to lay hands upon this mechanical body, why would I suffer Mr. Mycroft Holmes, who is entirely unknown to me? I haunted Cumlick Manor for upwards of 200 years while it crumbled around me. At least in this new ruin, I can be seen and heard and go about the world a little. And that was her last word on the subject. Defeated, Tacey gathered up the cards, shuffled them, and returned them to Angharad, who laid out another hand. As they contemplated the new spread, Sir Arthur burst into the sitting room, accompanied by an acrid whiff of fog and a tall, tow-haired man in a checked coat. This is Inspector Gregson of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Arthur said. Inspector, this is the lady I was telling you of, Miss Tacey Gott. Inspector Gregson linked his hands behind his back. Yes, your assistant, I believe you said. Something in his voice made Tacey lift her chin. Sir Arthur is too kind. His apprentice, I am, articled before the Guild of Mechanics. I felicitate you. Gregson said. This time the sneer was au clearly audible. He turned his deep-set eyes to Angharad. And this is the famous ghost in the machine. Angharad placed a card with mechanical precision. I thought it would move more natural-like, Gregson remarked. Does it talk? Of course I talk, Angharad said without lifting her head, though not, I think, to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
And the prequel is actually available online somewhere, right? No, it's actually, I think, in the My Book of Short Stories. It's in the prequels available in the back for sale? No, it's, it's in the, it seems like it's, it was, it's online, believe me. <laughs> Just look up. She will let you know. Google it. I don't think it's in the books. Wait. She doesn't even, wait. Please explain where, where we can read the prequel. <laughs> We will we will find out for you and we will we will tweet and Facebook and and, and Google it. Um, just want to uh, thank you all for coming. Thanks to uh, Delia and Alana. What a what a great reading tonight. It really, really was fantastic and uh, and one of the biggest crowds we've had in a long time. So this was this was really great. Thank you all for coming and uh, we'll see you uh, we'll see you next month, February seventeenth. So uh, have a good night and stay for drinks and buy books. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.